Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle. This is the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast. And today we're delighted to welcome back Corshi Dassou, pepperologist extraordinaire, and a man who knows a thing or two about early Christian magic from Egypt and elsewhere. Corshi, very good to see you again. Yeah, thank you for having me. Corshi, in the last episode, we talked about some of the discourses about magic in early Christianity. And by early Christianity, really, we're talking about church fathers from the third and fourth and fifth century. So it's not even that early. But we do have early Christian, like in the Acts of the Apostles, where they they do a big book burning of magical texts. We do have early Christian kind of polemics against magic. Sometimes they talk about magia, magia. Sometimes they talk about goetea, sorcery. And pretty much everyone in antiquity agrees that sorcery is bad. Some people want to kind of reclaim magia for, you know, like this holy magic, like we find in some of the PGM. Um, no one really says that about Goethe, as far as I'm aware. So that's our context. And then we, we sort of finished our discussion with Augustine, who basically makes this broad sweeping move that all polytheist religiosity is magic, essentially. It's, it's working with demons, whether you know it or not. And that's also what sorcery magia is so it's all kind of magic and it's all bad mm-hmm. and it's the opposite of what we as christians are doing and if we do magical stuff it's not magic it's miracles so that's setting the stage that's setting the uh maybe what you might call the parameters of ideological uh, approach to magic and then we turn to the real stuff on the ground and that's where you come in because we have lots of early christian magic right so if we're talking about early Christian magic that we have access to, that we have actually evidence for, what what kind of time, place, what are what are the details of our evidence base here? So generally speaking, when we're talking about the material evidence, we're usually talking about texts from Egypt, um, as some of your listeners may know, because it's basically only from Egypt that we find papyri. Um, we have a few metal objects from other parts of um, the Roman world and Near East. So if we're talking about this kind of evidence, there's kind of a big overlap, first of all, with what we'd call the older Greek and Demotic magical papyri. So some of these have elements which you could consider Christian. And then we can go later, so in terms of papyrological documents in Greek and Coptic, we find these until about the 12th century CE. Um, but very often these are copies of much earlier texts. Um, and we often find parallels even in the later manuscript traditions in various languages, so in Greek, but also in um, you know Armenian, Syriac, Ethiopic. So the situation is a little bit like we could say it is with um, looking at even texts of the Church Fathers, for example. So we have like a few fragments of early documents, perhaps on papyrus or on parchment, um, but then much of the evidence is later in the manuscript tradition, and we have to kind of use historical the historical method to try to uh, find the real age, find if it's pseudepigraphal, find if it's an authentic composition from that period. Yeah, so so the, it's very complicated. I suppose if we were talking about early Christian magic, we're trying to think about maybe the 4th to 7th century, something like that. So up the Arab conquest in Egypt, but very often we'll be using later evidence um, to try to reconstruct what was going on in that period. In terms of definition, of course, there's a question of what is magic and what is Christianity. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And I feel like actually what is magic is actually the easier question in this case. Nice. Um, just very quickly to, to define what we're talking about magic in this period. From a kind of outsider or ethic perspective, we're usually talking about rituals that do things. I mean, not a ritual that, I don't know, like a birthday party, which you just do. Uh, and nobody quite knows the reason, but it's the kind of social event that we have. Not a ritual that does something socially necessarily, like a wedding. Um, that does, you know, it changes the status of the two people who are taking part. 
um, but it doesn't do something physically. But a ritual, something like, you know, uh, making a sick person well again or hurting somebody, these kinds of rituals are what outsiders often call magic. But then we kind of straight away have to clarify that a little bit because within the kind of Orthodox Christian tradition, we also have rituals that do things. So you have the anaphora, which transforms, you know, the bread and wine into the blood and body of Jesus. Right. Um, you have liturgical prayers, anointing for the sick. So you have. So these are things which actually some people would call magic. So James Fraser and um, I think Thorne and the kind of modern scholar of cognitive science of magic, they would both call these Christian practices magic. But on the one hand, from an external perspective, rituals that do things, and I suppose the kind of private, non-institutional versions of these. Um, right. Exorcism yes, is another course. good Exorcism one. Exorcism is another one of these rituals that does things, and of course there are Christian liturgical versions of these which are still carried out to this day. And most people wouldn't call it magic. So, so it's a very this is a very messy etic definition within Christianity or within late antiquity, late antiquity itself. Um, and for Christians, as you say, there are these terms like magia or goetia and pharmakia, and these um, refer to specific practices as well, which often overlap quite a lot with the etic conception of magic. It's a little bit hard to, to define the boundaries, shall we say, um, but occasionally we can see where, you know, something seems to be something that would be called magia by most people in the culture and certain things whose status is a bit more contested. Right. Um, so in terms of defining Christian, uh, <laughs> that's maybe harder. So you've discussed this a bit, of course, in your last episodes, I think. So... Of course, Christians, uh, we think, are people who you know accept Jesus as the Son of God. But of course, in the early period, the status of Christ within Christianity is something that's not settled. Um, there's, of course, a period in which there are many people who would who we might consider or who might consider themselves Jews, who perhaps are also taking part in this early Jesus movement. Um, and of course, there's a lot of back and forth of that um, for several centuries. When we get later, you know, there are the groups that we now often talk about as Gnostic um, or even Manichaeans. Um, and of course, Jesus plays an important role in their cosmologies and their worldview and their practice. But do we consider them Christian or not? You know, it's a big question. That question is really relevant, maybe, because you're saying, you know, our evidence for Christian magic is quite late. When we want to look at early Christian magic, I was yes. thinking, come on, first century, second century, let's go. But no, it's <laughs> later antiquity. But if we look at a text like yeah, Mars yeah. Marsani's, right, which is from the uh, Nag Hammadi texts, it's yeah. a Gnostic text, you know, with all the problems that that brings with it. But it's probably being collected by Christian monks or something. We don't know who put this library together, but yeah, it's something like that, yeah. people who are very interested in, let's say, more esoteric flavors of Christianity, that's for sure. And it's kind of yeah, yeah. a magic book. It's kind of a grimoire. Um, so mm. that's a piece of Christian magic, arguably. It's pr probably datable to the fourth century yeah. in the form we have it, but it probably is the, the content is probably a bit older, maybe a lot older, you know. So, yeah. And, and the other place in which this plays in, of course, is we have the earliest magical texts we have that contain the name of Jesus are kind of maybe third, fourth century. But we have older texts which contain many Jewish figures. And of course, 
um, Christians think of themselves as kind of superseding Judaism. And of course, basically the entirety of Jewish culture and history is, is imported or appropriated wholesale by Christians. So this means that, I mean, work like the Testament of Solomon, which you talked, of course, about, um, we know that it was probably um, redacted in the form that we have it by a Christian because there are parts of it which look forward to the arrival of Jesus. But if you if you excerpt any particular part of it, you're only going to find references to um, the Jewish Bible or the Old Testament. And so this means that a lot of texts which look Jewish or which contain lots of Jewish elements could have been produced by or used by Christians, perhaps. When we look at the Testament of Solomon, uh, it's it's a collection of, it's blatantly a collection, among other things, it's, it's got a frame narrative and stuff, but it's blatantly a collection of Jewish addressative magic practices, angel magic, not unlike the Sefer HaRazim, right? It's the, the two are very reminiscent of each other in a lot of ways, not in the specifics, but in the general vibe, collections of spells, let's say, that have been put together under a frame narrative. And they're dealing with angels a lot, dealing with angels to, to, to deal with the problem of demons. In fact, they have that in common. How likely do you think it is that we have a lot of ancient magic material that was in fact in use by Christians or was in fact written by Christians or whatever, but it just doesn't mention anything that flags it as Christian. So we just think it's not, but it's quite possibly was. Yeah, so I mean, that's a, a very big question. If we think about kind of papyrology more broadly, Roger Bagnell, who's one of the kind of most prominent leading papyrologists, he points out that we probably wouldn't actually even expect to have any papyri produced by Christians until, say, the second or third century, because there just weren't enough of them and the papyri that are preserved um, are not um, abundant enough. So, yeah, so it's probably in the second or third century we expect to start seeing Christians. Um, and of course, when we start seeing texts produced by them, very often they may be, and they almost certainly are, indistinguishable from texts that would be produced by Jews. So, you know, we have early copies of, you know, the Psalms or of other um, Old Testament books. Um, and it's, there's often a huge amount of debate about whether these are Christian products or whether they're Jewish products. And people try to use various signs, so things like the certain abbreviations of God's name, which are generally used by Christians. People all tend to say that, for example, Christians will use the codex form, Jews will use the roll form, but these are not necessarily completely reliable indicators. Right. Uh, so, so in the early period, it's almost certain, and and even you know going forward, so even when we get into like the seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth century, we often find texts which are almost certainly being produced by Christians because Egypt is entirely Christianized by this period, um, and yet they don't necessarily mention Jesus or they don't necessarily mention Mary or another clearly. Christian figure they rather are calling upon or mentioning, um, you know, God the Father, perhaps by his um, Hebrew names, Yao Sabot, and they're also perhaps mentioning David or Michael or Gabriel, so these figures who are common both to Judaism and to Christianity and even, in fact, um, Islam, of course. Yeah. There's a lot of debate in the study of, of Christianity in Egypt about when, Christi when Egypt is Christianized, and in fact, even what that means, right? So we think that it's something which really speeds up um, after the... Um, the rule of Constantine. So, of course, after Constantine, the Roman emperors start promoting Christianity as the the official religion. Um, and so we think Christianity in Egypt went from being a minority to a majority probably by the 5th century. There's a big question about what exactly that means, right? So how Christian are these Christians and what does Christianity mean to them? Yeah. Um, and uh, there's just a nice little story I thought I'd share as an example. Of, um, so Ramsey McMullen uses a story of from the life of Saint Simeon the Stylite of these um, of a group of Arabs who come to visit the saint uh, for a blessing, and because Theodoret, his biographer, is there as well, and he's a he's also a bishop, um, they ask for his blessing as well, 
Um, and it claims that he re they received the teaching of the gospel and they destroyed their idols. But then they started fighting with each other about who got to touch the holy man, um, who deserved a blessing from the holy man. Um, and so Ramsay McMullen suggests for these people, they just see him as a kind of source of power. And so they just want to go him, go there, treat him as like a living talisman, and they go back into the desert without really having undergone anything like a conversion experience. So for people like Ramsay McMullen, perhaps um, some of the people who are um, on that side of the debate, perhaps in the study of early Christianity, this idea that Christianity may just be like a, another source of power within late and the kind of late antique, I guess, cosmology, right? And this this is important for magic because when we start to see the name of Jesus or these other Jewish Christian figures in magical texts, they're very often in collections alongside, you know, Greek and Egyptian deities. Um, and so it's not necessarily the case that every time we see it, it's something which is used by a Christian um, or produced by a Christian, even it's just something which could be part of this larger, you know, range of potential powers that you can call upon. Right. And we do have at least one incantation bowl from Sasanian late antiquity, which is as identifiable as Jewish as anything from antiquity is, because this stuff is really seems to have been Jewish uh, practice. And one of them at least mentions the name Jesus. So was this a Christian? Mm, probably not. I think the, the general interpretation is this was a Jew who heard good things about the wonder-working power of the name Jesus. Mm -hmm. Very useful for keeping demons away, for example. So yeah, just throw that into the useful for keeping demons away uh, name basket. You know, we, we don't know how this name ended up there, but that seems the most kind of plausible. Um, yeah, exactly. So there's, there's kind of fluidity on these boundaries. Um, and I think that fluidity can be overstressed to an extent. I think that there are probably a lot of people who were Christians and understood themselves to be Christians. And they, I mean, we know nowadays that it's very rare that somebody has a very neat identity. Right. And a lot of people, their actual practice and their actual beliefs contain a little bit of mixture of different things from uh, different sources. You know, you might have a Catholic who believes in reincarnation. You might have a Hindu who has a little shrine to Jesus because they think that Jesus is a great guy or Mother Teresa or something like that. Yeah, so we have to we have to understand this complexity, but at the same time, I think we can talk generally perhaps about um, identities or practices falling more within one tradition than another. Yeah, brilliant. I think this is a very good point that we should keep in mind when we're going around labeling people as just this and just that, but also really important when we think about our evidence for Christian belief, a lot of which comes from these well-educated theologians, mm. the church fathers, many of whom are, you know, extremely high-level, uh, Hellenically educated, quasi-philosophers even in some cases, and the reality on the ground. So that it, it suddenly becomes not so crazy that the Nag Hammadi library could have been collected, possibly even by Christian monks in the kind of remote-ish Egypt, well into the Christian era, into what's supposed to be the official Christian monotheistic hegemony, because they never got the memo from <laughs> St. Augustine or whoever about how we don't do this and 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 we have very strong theological reasons for it. They're, they're not in that thought world at all. So, mm. yeah, things are messy on the ground when you're studying stuff. And we're about to see examples of that. So, ancient Christian magic. Let's get technical or let's get um, concrete. We've, we've already talked about the Testament of Solomon, and that's something we've talked about on the podcast as well. So that's a very early, wonderfully early uh, Christian magical text, you can argue. It's a, almost certainly a redaction of an earlier Jewish magical text or collection of magical texts, but it's become a Christian magical text. What else do we find in our corpus, if you can kind of summarize the sorts of things we get? 
Yeah, so um, maybe I should set up a kind of typology of the kinds of texts we have. So maybe the earliest clearly Christian magical texts that we have are what I'd call scriptural or amulets. So these are little little amulets, little pieces of papyrus usually, which have a passage from the Bible on it. It's usually the beginnings of one of the four Gospels um, and uh, or um, Psalm 90 in Septuagint, so 91 in the Masoretic numbering, which is already an important amuletic text within Judaism. Or um, the, the other text, which is often used, the kind of sixth most popular text, is the letter of Abgar. So this King Abgar of Odessa was supposed to have written a letter to Jesus, and Jesus was supposed to have written a reply. Um, and this is supposed to be the only document written by Jesus himself. And this is actually a very popular um, amuletic text in, in Christian antiquity. Um, so these are the five, no, six texts that are most common on amulets, and sometimes you find little combinations of them. Um, and the earliest example of this probably dates to the third or fourth century, and people just kind of take this little piece of papyrus, they fold it up, and they wear it on their body somewhere, and it's meant to protect them or heal them. And what's quite interesting is that we have mentions of this from Augustine Chrysostom, um, and they seem to be aware that it was happening, and they seem to think that it's okay. They don't necessarily believe, perhaps, that it's some kind of, that it's really going to heal you, um, but they do think that it's better than wearing some kind of amulet with mysterious, strange content, mysterious, strange magical signs. Um, you know, Augustine says, you know, even if it won't heal you, at least you're not going to damn yourself by um, going to somebody who's selling an amulet from a demon. But for them, it's quite clear that this is not Magia. But from us as outsiders, we see something written on a piece of papyrus and folded and then worn for protection. And it, of course, falls into this category of amulet, which falls into this um, outsider category of magic. So that's the first thing is the insipid amulet. Mm -hmm. um, the the next thing was something which is very interesting, and um, I call these narrative charms. These are kind of little stories, short texts, which consist of what um, David Frankfurter calls a storioli. Um, so little stories that are meant to kind of change the change the reality. What's interesting about these charms is they're attested very, very widely. Um, they're very well studied in Europe from kind of late antiquity to the modern day. Um, so the very well-known example of one called Flum Jordan, which is well studied um, in English. Jesus and John the Baptist were walking in the River Jordan. Um, Jesus said to the River Jordan, stop flowing. Just as the River Jordan stopped flowing, so shall the blood of this person stop flowing. And it's something which people would recite if someone was sick. And of course, we know it um, because sometimes people also wrote it down. It seems to have been primarily an oral practice. Um, and what's quite interesting is we have quite a lot of examples of these from Egypt um, written down. Um, the earliest one is, well, this is where it becomes very interesting. So the earliest one we could say that comes from Egypt actually comes from something like the Middle Kingdom. So we have these short stories where it's usually um, Horus, for example. Horus is in the desert. He gets burned. He cries out. Isis helps him and uh, gives him some kind of water or some kind of milk, which then heals the burn. And just in the same way that um, Horus is healed, so shall, um, so shall the, the child who has been burned um, in real life be healed. Um, now, these kind of disappear for a little bit. We have examples from the Ptolemaic period, but we have very few examples from the period um, where the Greek and Demotic magical papyri are being produced. Um, among the hundreds of texts we have, we have maybe one or two. Um, but they become quite popular again in Coptic magic, so say from the 4th and 5th century onwards. Um, and we have some examples with Jesus. So we have, for example, uh, Jesus was walking, he saw a deer who was trying to give birth. The deer cried out and asked Jesus for help. Um, Jesus said to the deer, um, you can't. You are unable to bear my majesty, but I will send Michael to you, and he will um, help you bear your child. And in the same way, so and so will give birth um, without difficulty. Um, so that's a very nice example, which comes from the eighth century. But on the same papyrus that that's written on, we have a story in which Horus 
the ancient Egyptian gods. There's an 8th century text, well wow. into the, not only after Christianization, but also after the Islamic conquest. Horus is walking in the desert, he eats a bird, he gets a stomachache, he cries out to Isis, and Isis helps him by curing his stomach. So these kinds of stories, these kind of short narratives, they seem to be something which were, in my opinion, primarily oral, but occasionally we find them written down. And of course, the very interesting thing is that we have quite late examples up to the 8th century or so, where the characters in these are not Jesus and Mary, um, but are rather Horace and I Isis. And once again, this is something we find in the kind of larger charming tradition. So uh, there's a well-known example um, in Old English, um, I think from the 9th century, in which you have a lot of stories about Jesus doing various healing acts, but you also find mentions of Woden. So it seems this kind of oral tradition of charming is one way in which pagan deities, pagan inverted commas, can survive quite late, even in, in Christian contexts, um, because these are kind of oral charms which you transmit from person to person and which you bring out whenever somebody has a particular illness, which you know you can help them with. This is a, a great example of something I've noticed about and been fascinated about with uh, magical traditions, is they, they show this incredible and quite hard to pin down combination of extreme conservatism where mm. you have forms and stories and narrative structures and things like this surviving way longer than you would expect. And also extreme remixy chop and changingness where to find a magical text that doesn't change at all in transmission is very rare. You know, like yeah, people yeah, take yeah. bits out, they add bits, they chop something into two, they make a short version and include it in another compilation. So there's this sort of extreme conservatism on the one hand and extreme, yeah, remix culture on the other, yeah, which yeah. is really interesting. And I suppose what's interesting about these, what I'm calling charms or narrative charms, is that they do seem to me at least to be something which is primarily an oral um, practice, even though the versions that we have, of course, are, are written down. And they are somewhat different from... I think quite often in charm studies are distinguished from what we think of as the ceremonial magic tradition. Um, there's less kind of mention of complex rituals attached to them. Um, there's less of this kind of direct performative or addressative language used. There's no, there's very rarely, for example, statements like I invoke you or I call upon you by, I don't know, by uh, the great God's use or by uh, the wounds of Jesus. You don't have these kinds of statements. Usually it's just this very simple story structure, so something which is very easy to transmit from person to person, but which, as you say, can go through mutations, you know, because a story can mutate while kind of retaining the same basic structure. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of very nice work on, on these kind of charms generally, I should say, by Jonathan Ropen and James Capallo and people like that over the last 20 years. Um, although the, the Coptic examples, which I think are very interesting, are something which has not really been studied that much. So I've, I've mentioned scriptural um, amulets and narrative charms. There's another kind of interesting type of curse, which um, are often called the prayer for justice. So I think you may have discussed these in earlier episodes, but you have, of course, the kind of pan-Mediterranean cursing practice where you write something down on a piece of lead and then you bury it in a grave or in a sanctuary. Or burn like it, that. potentially, depending on the context. Yeah, yeah. Or, or, or throw or it in the water as, well. as it bath. Yes, crossroads sometimes. So these come to Egypt, and we have examples of these from Egypt, I think from the first century CE or so, often on lead, but sometimes on papyrus. Um, there's an author called Hank now. He talks about a particular type of these called the prayer for justice, and he distinguishes these from the kind of binding curse or defixio in that they are more, they're more like prayers, so rather than kind of saying, I bind down so-and-so, or I invoke you, Hermes, or I invoke you, Hecate, goddess of the underworld, rather they say, oh so-and-so god 
um, I have been harmed by somebody, please help me. Um, and so there's a kind of double, well, there's lots of differences, but some of the differences are that rather than kind of binding somebody down or trying to stop somebody from hurt, harming you or from acting against you, rather you are trying to, um, to get justice or revenge for something that someone has done to you. And of course, it's late antique justice, which involves torture and even death. <laughs> but, right. Uh, it's still kind of considered justice in the context. So sometimes people will say, oh, I've, been, I've, I've had my cloak stolen, for example. Um, we have lots of examples from, um, from Bath. Um, sanctuary of Minerva Sulis, um, where they'll say, so-and-so stole my cloak. Um, oh, goddess Minerva, please punish them. So this is something which Henk Personal studied um, in several articles. It's a little bit controversial to the extent to which it really is a different category of text right. from the binding curses. We see a lot of overlap in practice. Um, but theoretically, at least, Personnel and certain other scholars think that you can differentiate them. Um, but what's quite interesting to me is that I think there are some very clear examples in Egypt, say from the 4th century onwards, they tend to be relatively early, so say 4th to 7th century, where they, they, they do really seem to be quite different from the other kind of curses we get. So the other curses, well, you know, there's something like, um, I bind so-and-so so that he may not be able to act against me. Now, now, quickly, quickly, then you may have like a drawing of the person being tied up. Um, you may have characters. Um, by contrast, we have a lot of examples, um, some in Greek, some in Coptic, um, well, really, they are more like prayers, um, and often they actually are very much phrased like petition, in fact. So they actually draw upon the form of the petition, they refer to themselves um, as libelli, so this is a Latin term which refers to a, pet a petition um, that you might depose to like a secular um, a secular um, figure of authority, like a governor or someone like that. Got it. Um, and so, say for example, O Lord God, you who um, saved Daniel in the lion's den, you who saved Noah from the flood, please save me from my enemies um, who are attacking me. They usually aren't very specific, um, although occasionally they are. We have one example where a woman is complaining about her daughter-in-law who, who has wronged her and st stolen her son from her. Um, and she, she wishes this woman, um, they're, as I said, they're often quite nasty. So they begin with this kind of petition to God, phrased like a prayer, but then they often kind of are quite clear about what, what God or his angels should do. So they'll say things like strike so-and-so down so that he may never rise. Um, and the example with a mother-in-law, it says, dry up her womb. So they're often quite cruel, quite vicious, and they are often quite, they, they often describe torture in quite explicit details. Um, but as I said, we know this is what justice looked like um, in, in late antiquity. If you're called before a judge and he finds you guilty, he's going to order you to be beaten, for example, or killed. So, right. so yeah, so this is an interesting category that we find. What's interesting from the perspective of studying magic is that they often don't have the kinds of features that we often consider uh, indicative of magic, these kind of characters or performative language or focus magikai or, or drawings. Occasionally they do, um, but the majority kind of don't. And when we look at them together, it's often quite clear there's a kind of difference in, in genre, perhaps we could say. Henk Verstel's argument was that these are, these are not magic in the context in which they're produced. They're kind of, they're considered by Greeks and then later by Christians as legitimate prayers. It's prayer. Um, and so this right. is an interest. If, he, if he's right, this is an interesting uh, distinction. Well, I guess we could assume bringing this stuff, bringing this uh, broader category to focus just on the Christian material we have, right? Presumably any Christian who bothered to ask the question and the degree to which they did bother to ask the question is, is a good question. What am I doing here? Mm. They would have said, I'm praying to God, Right. And, oh, yeah, certainly. And we know what does God do, among other things. He uh, rights wrongs, brings justice. And so, of course, you pray to him for justice. If, if that involves 
uh, someone's womb drying up or someone being tortured or whatever. Well, okay, maybe we don't think of that as a very Christian way of being <laughs> nowadays, but uh, presumably at the time, as a Christian, especially someone who's not necessarily a theologian or a fancy schmancy Christian intellectual, they believe in God and what does God do? Well, among other things, you pray to him to get stuff that's wrong, write it. So, yeah, absolutely. That's um, cool. So then we get to the last category, which is the ones which I would think of as kind of magical texts proper. And this would include things like the Testament of Solomon. So the earliest example of what we have that is from the 5th century. We have um, apparently the, the kind of Deccan catalogue, which has been extracted. Um, and we have it copied in the 5th century text, which is in Vienna just now. Um, but then there's a kind of a whole range of these very interesting texts, which are often attributed to um, well-known kind of Christian figures and saints. So there's Testament of Solomon, of course, attributed to Solomon. Um, a very no, well-known one is the Prayer of, Mar uh, Prayer of Mary, often known as the Prayer of Mary at Bartos. Um, this is the prayer which the Virgin Mary is supposed to have spoken um, in one version when she, um, when, well, uh, on the day of her, her falling asleep, so that on the day in which she died, it was a prayer which perhaps Jesus taught to her. Um, in the Ethiopic version, so we have versions in both Coptic and Ethiopic, in the Ethiopian version, this is the kind of miracle that she performed when she went to the city of Bartos, which is maybe Parthia. Um, she said, broke this prayer and it was capable of healing people, um, of opening doors and of dissolving the chains that um, prisoners were bound by. Um, and this is a very long, complex prayer in which she basically calls upon God and the various angels to kind of descend and cast out demons and heal people and right every wrong. And this is perhaps composed maybe around the 5th, 6th, 6th century, um, but it actually continues to be used. And I should say we actually have Arabic versions dating from the 20th century. So it, wow. it actually became a text which is which is and, and Ethiopian versions used to this day. So it's a text which actually in the modern days you can find in printed versions, um, sometimes in modern collections of um, magical or, or efficacious prayers um, in Egypt and Ethiopia. Um, so this is um, a great example of, of how when we think of all of this stuff as being stuff from the old days that we don't do anymore. Uh, well, no, um, especially in certain parts of the world, this these magical traditions are alive and well, and there never was an enlightenment kind of rejection of all that, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So I, I mean, what's very interesting. So as I've had to mention too, but there's, there's there's really a lot of these. There's other ones attributed to Saint Cyprian. There's other ones um, att uh, attributed to. Um, there's a very nice early Greek example um, attributed to um, uh, Jacob, so um, the patriarch Jacob. And these, these often we have, you know, relatively early Coptic versions or Greek versions from Egypt. But then we have much later ones, you know, from the 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th century, even later. So in other languages, yeah. Long reception history of, of some of this material. Exactly, yeah. So, so you have these kind of long, complex ones, which are often quite liturgical in their language. Um, uh, so again, again, we could maybe think about the PGM. You know, you have something like the, the Mithras liturgy, or even something like the Serenities, a very long, complicated text. Um, but then you have a lot of shorter recipes which seem to circulate um, independently, and they might be inspired by these kind of longer, more liturgical, more literary ones. But we find, you know, dozens and dozens, and even hundreds of examples on papyrus and parchment from Egypt. So. These are kind of shorter prayers, um, usually to God or sometimes the angels, sometimes even to demons. We have examples that mention um, invocations of demons and even of Satan um, from Egypt. Um, and of course, these are clearly Christian because, you know, a pagan isn't going to pray to Satan because they don't believe in him. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, 
Yeah, and these and these are for all kinds of things. So the kind of long liturgical ones tend to be for um, healing and exorcism. The shorter ones that we have can be things like love spells, curses, divination. So kind of the whole gamut of of practices that we find um, in the older um, uh, Greek and demotic magical tradition. So it, the problem is that a lot of the stuff is really un insufficiently studied. So one of the things which I'm doing just now is to try to kind of bring all this material together into, into a kind of coherent historical narrative. Um, but my impression is that kind of in the fourth, fifth century, you know, as Christianity becomes more implanted as a religion, you start to have these kind of specifically Christian forms of magic being developed. And these are then either transmitted um, throughout the Eastern Mediterranean and up to the modern day, um, or there may be, you know, more uh, individual, more idiosyncratic texts which just have short lives um, and which we find attested um, just in a few copies in Egypt. And this is part of your project? So this has kind of been one of our goals is to try to understand the kind of shape um, of, of this very interesting tradition, which is uh, it's kind of a, it's almost a, an invisible tradition, right? Like all of, a lot of these texts are out there, they're printed. Um, but people are not kind of aware of them or the or the connections between them. Yeah, and um, it's easy to see why it's invisible for a number of reasons. Partly because just magic is just weird stuff and people don't want to think about it. Partly because Christianity itself, from quite early on, says we don't have any magic. We're against that sort of thing. But then yeah. when we see blatantly Christian magic that isn't even in the, the borderland between prayer and addressative ritual, because that is always a tough borderland to map, but in the let's invoke Satan to get some stuff done category of magic, then you think, okay, there really is Christian magic going on, like black magic even, yeah, if, that, yeah. if that term has any kind of analytical value. And so we are watching the outcomes of your project with a, a keen eye because it's going to be um, a very interesting story, I think, or series of focused stories that emerge from this research as we start to put yeah. piece together this secret history of uh, Christian magic. Perhaps like two little, two other little things to, to talk about. So I mentioned the Sarandis, and that's something else I wanted to say, of course. Let me just um, remind our listeners. Magic, which is, sorry, can yeah. I talk over you for a sec? Let me just remind our listeners. The, the yes, Chironides or Sarandides is a book on the occult properties of gemstones and, and um, plants and stuff like that, written in Greek, attributed to none other than Hermes Trismegistus. So this is a piece of what is often called technical hermetica. And go. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, so the Sarandis, um, yeah, as you say, it's quite old. You don't know exactly how old. I think people sometimes date it as early as the first century CE, sometimes later. I think some people might even try to date parts of it earlier. Um, I've, I've heard read, I think, first century BCE as a, really? as a oh, conjecture. Sure. But um, you're more yeah. up on the, this kind of literature than I am. So I mean, I think it's very hard to say, to be honest. Yeah. Um, there are certainly parts of it where the language is um, exactly the same language that we find in text from the PGM, so this does imply a date of at least the 4th century. And of course, there's nothing explicitly Christian about it, so once again, there's something which suggests a pre-4th century CE date. Yeah. Um, I don't know if anything, if anything to suggest like a terminus adquem, the kind of earliest possible date. But um, yes, of course, the Serenandes is very interesting, partly because all the examples that we have of it are relatively late. Like I think the earliest copy that we have is the 13th century of our era. So this is not um, a Christian text. It kind of belongs to this pre-Christian Greco-Egyptian magical tradition, I suppose, to which the Hermetica is a kind of cousin. But, of course, it's being used by Christians. This is the other side of the equation. Perhaps we have magic which is kind of produ clearly produced in a Christian context. We have magic which is not clear clearly Christian, but which Christians still use. There are perhaps many examples of that, apart from the Serenities. Mm. Um, the other the other thing I wanted to talk about very quickly is that we have, so I mentioned, um, I think, in PGM4, the great magical Paris of Paris, we have a couple of texts that mention Jesus. 
Um, and these are the earliest, I think, examples of, um, of, of well, the earliest clear examples of Jesus appearing in magical texts. Uh, and what's interesting about these, well, there's lots of interesting things that are interesting, but one of the interesting things is this is clearly a non-Christian codex. Um, so it's produced by somebody who was perhaps even an Egyptian priest. We have um, old Coptic and old Coptic tends to be re um, restricted to, uh, to, to temple priesthoods in terms of the, the places where we know manuscripts come from. Uh, so we have invocations, um, love spells, for example, which call upon the moon goddess, Hecate Selene Mene. We have invocations for divination to the sun god. Uh, we have invocations to Osiris or Anubis, but then we also have these texts which call upon or which mention Jesus. And so it's very interesting that we have this incorporation of apparently Christian material into this non-Christian codex. In particular, one of the texts is an exorcism about midway through PGM4, the great magical Epirus of Paris. Um, and it's an exorcism, so it's often actually used by Christian historians to kind of look at what pagan exorcism looked like, to contrast it with the exorcism that we find in the Bible. Um, but methodologically, this is very problematic because, so the text itself calls upon Jesus, um, and it calls upon the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, um, and the God of Jacob, um, Jesus, who is Jesus, and then it mentions various other um, Christian features. It, it calls upon um, Jesus to cast out um, Satanas, so it, it understands um, Satan as the name of a demon. And another interesting thing about it is that it's written in Coptic, uh, but it's written in a very strange form of Coptic. So it's written in a form of Coptic which is from the north, it's basically Bohiric, whereas the text that we have comes from the far south of Egypt, from Thebes. So you know, this, this text has travelled a long way geographically. But the other thing that's interesting about it is that it contains none of the kind of Coptic demotic characters that you only find in Coptic. So the Coptic alphabet is made up of the Greek letters, plus extra letters that you add for sounds that don't exist in Greek, like sh or f or k these extra sounds. It doesn't have any of these. These were invented probably around the year 300. Um, so this may imply that, in fact, this is a text which is older than the 4th century. I mean, for me, it's fairly certain that it is. So it seems like it is a text which maybe even comes from the 2nd, 3rd century. It's a Christian exorcism. Um, so it may even be one of the earliest surviving Christian liturgical texts that we have. Um, even though it's not completely orthodox, and we find it in this magical collection. Uh, that so is fascinating. Yeah. Let's think about the context here. Nothing's completely orthodox yet, because no one's invented orthodoxy yet, if it is from the 2nd or 3rd century. I mean, by the, by the beginning yeah. of the 4th century, maybe we can start to agree on what orthodox means, because the Council of Nicaea has said, okay, it's official now. Don't argue with the emperor. This is what orthodoxy is. But before that, it's up in the air retroactively, if you are a, say you're a Catholic or whatever, you can say, no, it was, theology was always the same all the way back to the Jesus and the apostles, but historians aren't going to buy that, right? So yeah, yeah. if this is indeed one of our earliest Christian liturgical texts, which it sounds like it is, that is a, a blatant argument why historians of Christianity should be interested in magical texts, right? People oh, who have I, no interest I, in magic I, at all, this is a really important historical document. Yeah, and I really think it's, it's, it's ignored for the very reason that you say. And, that, and people, when they do use it, they generally try to contrast it with, you know, Jesus' exorcism practice. Um, but of course, what's interesting there is that you have this text, which is an exorcism. This is a procedure which becomes very much standard, a standard practice for later Christians. Um, it calls upon the patriarchs. So we have references to this kind of adjuration of demons by the patriarchs and Justin Martyr. Um, and in Oregon, um, they attribute it to the Jews, but, um, you know, obviously this has Jesus effects. So this attest is practiced very early. And then when we later come to um, the kind of pre-baptismal exorcisms, 
I found a version um, in Latin from the 7th century, which actually has the same feature, this exorcism of the demon by the god of the three patriarchs. So this could be an indication that it is kind of part of this tradition, which is known, for example, at least in the 2nd century, to Justin Martyr. And of course, the fact that it appears in PGM4 means that it's of interest to a non-Christian as a text which belongs to this larger category of perhaps magic, you know? So he classes it with these other texts, these things like love spells and healing spells and divination spells. For him, this Christian liturgical practice fits into this category. Mm. Um, so that's something else which is quite interesting, the way in which a non-Christian might receive even what we might think of as an, a relatively orthodox Christian practice. Yeah, it strikes me as probably not an accident that it's in the context of um, exorcism, although speaking speculatively beyond the evidence probably here. But if you look at what the apostles are doing, well, if you look at what Jesus is doing and what the apostles are doing in Acts of the Apostles, it's it's all either healing or exorcism, really. And really with an emphasis on the exorcism. Jesus does a lot of exorcisms. The apostles yeah. do a lot of exorcisms. It seems like the Christians have a specialism in exorcism. And the name of Jesus in Acts of the Apostles and lots and lots of non-canonical Christian literature is like the sovereign exorcism word, right? You just say Jesus and demons go running. So if that is indeed a real Christian kind of fixation or, or thing that the Christians are especially known for, let's say, from an outsider perspective, oh, you need an exorcism. Well, that's the Christian thing. They're really into exorcisms. They're all about exorcisms. It may be that that would be the potentially why someone compiling a magical book would want to put in a, specifically a Christian thing to cover the exorcism side of stuff. Right. I mean, the Jews are also yeah, into exorcism, yeah, exactly. but the Christians are seem to be really into exorcism, like really. <laughs> Both of the times that Jesus mentioned in PGM4 are in the context of exorcisms. So I think you're right on the money there. Right on. Now, Korshi, thank you so much for introducing the field, the evidence of early Christian magic, or as early as we can go, typologizing it for us from a, the perspective of someone who's got papyri on his desk all day long and really has thought about what different kinds of uh, Christian magic there are and giving us a picture of not only what we know, but um, what we're likely to discover in the next uh, few years as your, your project progresses and other people's projects progress. And all of this uh, unknown stuff kind of sees the light of day and starts to get better understood by scholars. Thanks very much and stay esoteric. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>